Hey, Cabot Cove Gazette fans, this is TJ coming to you with a little favor to ask of you. So my dear colleague and co-host Bridget is currently undertaking a survey on both Murder, She Wrote and Angela Lansbury fandom for a book she is currently writing. So if you are as in love with either Murder, She Wrote or Angela Lansbury as we are, we, she and I would love it if you could take about 30 minutes, it's uh, 30 questions on the questionnaire, to speak a little bit about your own fandom, what drew you to Murder, She Wrote, and so forth. And you can find the link for it on our Cabot Cove Gazette social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks very much in advance. Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette. I'm Bridget Keys, And I'm TJ West. And today we're going to talk about Hooray for Homicide, also known as Jessica's first foray into the film industry. Uh... So in this episode, Jessica finds out that her one of her books has been has gotten a movie deal. She it's being made into a movie by a sleazy producer, and she's very upset at how they're changing her story. Goes out to Hollywood, busts in on the set, finds the producer dead. Mm-hmm. TJ, do you want to give your fifteen word summary? Sure. So let's see. I think, I, I mean, you summed it up so perfectly that I'm just trying to have to see how I can encapsulate this in 15 words. So, <laughs> Jessica does Hollywood, <laughs> finds it seedy and unpleasant, guy dies, romantic tragedy ensues. That's close enough. Close enough, I yeah. That, <laughs> I, I, think that, I think that encapsulates pretty much the uh, the gist of it. Since we begin actually in Cabot Cove, and then we, we move to... We do beginning. With Ethan, our good old buddy mm-hmm. Ethan. But, and actually... Know, what? No, go ahead. I was going to say, so for, for me, like, I actually find this to be a very good episode because I think that the three narrative strands that I outlined, like Jessica's encounter with film, the murder, which is a, a romantic tragedy to some degree, and, um, uh, and, and the sort of the investigation plot all really work well together. So I find it to be a sort of nicely constructed episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has a, you know, has a very brief appearance by the Hollywood great actress Virginia Mayo as the uh, the costume person, which I thought was pretty great. Although, of course, I don't know if kids today know who Virginia Mayo is, but... Probably not. But she's wonderful. Do you know who Virginia Mayo and is? She, and she's nice to Jessica, which is, like, uh-huh. really interesting because everyone else is, like, a stereotypical Hollywood person who's too busy for anything. Uh-huh. Oh, and also Lyle Wagner is in this episode. It's an Lyle embarrassment Wagner of, like, is indeed in this episode. It's an embarrassment of 1980s riches. Yeah. Of TV riches, because we have John Aston who plays the director. I was just going to say, we also have John Aston who we'll see again as a citizen of Cabot Cove soon. Uh-huh. I just love it. I love these moments when, like, you know, it's the sort of portrait gallery of television and film, like, that we get sometimes with Murder, She Wrote, which I, something I love and appreciate about the show is that it's giving it a, a, a platform for stars who, who's maybe their greatest day is behind them, but who are finding, you know. <laughs> supporting work and a nice it's true like are you gonna tell me that virginia mayo was like you know her her height of her career was in the 50s not not the 80s (laughs) people aren't queuing up outside the theater to see the new virginia mayo picture by the 80s but don't you think that you know i mean that's kind of the whole shtick with angela lansbury where her greatest days behind her and then she's about to launch 12 years uh, plus tv movies of this series so exactly like it's very unfair of you to say that about the guest stars because maybe they were about to have their breakthrough moments spoiler alert they weren't (laughs) (laughs) anyway 
I love the opening where we see like this person in a rocking chair and it looks very psycho and then somebody comes up behind them with gloves and a rope and strangles them and it turns out it's just Jessica at her house plotting the next murder uh-huh. for her next book. Yes, and we see the infamous typewriter with her ha- pe- pecking away as she's writing, which as a write as both of us as writers ourselves, it's just like God. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how hard that would have been to write books on a typewriter? I mean, I when I learned typing in high school, I did learn on a typewriter, not that old fashioned type, but like you know. When the, were you in high school? Nineteen sixty-five. I grew up in a very small town in Appalachia, and so when I first took typing, and circa nineteen ninety-six, ninety-seven, maybe ninety-seven. I'm not kidding you. We were learning on typewriters. I had to learn That's how to horrifying. align paper in a typewriter. That's horrifying. I mean, my grandparents had typewriters, and I liked playing on them. But like, we I literally learned how. I, had Apple computers had in school. Correction, correction ribbon and everything. I'm oh not kidding. Oh my god, like, what a night! It would. I just feel like it would have taken so long. No wonder she's always crabby when people are interrupting her. You know. Yeah, but it, in it this is, episode, it, Ethan is fixing her sink, and I just have to say, I have I take issue with Jessica in this because Ethan is fixing her sink for her. She's trying to sit at the kitchen table and work, and she's yelling at him that he's making too much noise because she's trying to work. It's like, honey, you can pick up the typewriter and move to another room. It's not a computer that has to be plugged in, right? This guy's right. doing you a favor, and she's yelling at him. Yeah. I, I have so many questions that come up about this use of the typewriter. Is this, like, the rough draft that she's typing out? <laughs> Is it the final draft? Like, I have so many questions that go into Can the you comp- imagine, like, though, Jessica's being a writer and you're, you're typing up your stuff, and then you, you snail mail it to New York, right? Like, there's, she's not faxing this, and she's definitely not emailing it. So she's going to put it in an envelope and mail it to New York. Like, how many books do you think great works of literature got lost in the mail in the pre-email days? But then her editor's going to read it on paper and make notes, mail it back to her, and then she's going to have to retype this whole thing? This sounds like a yeah. nightmare. I mean, just, I mean, that's, I, that, again, it, you know, it's not necessarily directly related to the show, but it is just a reminder of just how much technology has reshaped our whole life. Like, our, ent- yeah. especially those of us who are creatives and writers, like, it has totally reshaped how we encounter and how we, like, engage with our written material. Like, it's just, it's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. It's also, that's like, really... only, like, one second of this episode that mostly takes place in L.A., and here we are, like, five minutes later still going on about Jessica and the typewriter. But I do think that's what I loved about this episode was just how much it really dives into like the writerly aspect and like the various aspects of what go into being an author, which we saw in the first episode when I commented on like, you know, the publicity junket that she goes on. But now we see the sort of like the business side, like where where she goes to L.A. and she finds that being adapted into a, a movie isn't always a great experience for the author, especially as they see how their work is bastardized and, you know, mined for like the few relevant details and then completely constructed out of whole cloth by the the powers that be in Hollywood to make something that's palatable and saleable. Yeah, so in Birds of a Feather, it's mentioned that she has a movie deal. And here we see the results of that movie deal. Um, The Corpse Dance at Midnight is being made into a movie. And we're also supposed to think of Jessica still as a little bit naive to how this stuff works. So she's obviously had to sign a contract to give away the screen rights um, and didn't realize that she had also forfeited her creative control over the project so the movie is being made into like this it, I, it's very hard to describe this movie it doesn't even look like a movie it looks like an MTV music video like I'm, I don't understand how they could sustain this aesthetic for two hours but they're trying yeah. to make it looks like an erotic feature. thriller it's an erotic like. thriller but it's got like a, a, a cemetery made out of neon lights and there's like smoke machines and in this the one scene that we see being shot there's not actual dialogue it, it looks very balletic in that sense which is why it feels uh-huh. like very MTV to me 
Um, and there's a sex scene. So, of course, that horrifies Jessica, right? So we're supposed to uh-huh. believe she never writes sex scenes, which means she definitely is writing cozy mysteries. Uh-huh. Which also makes you wonder how they became such bestsellers. But maybe I'm cynical. I guess People like sex. That's true, especially in the 80s. But clearly there were some housewives and, and other kind of, and gay men probably reading these these cozy mysteries in the 80s. <laughs> Not the gay men in San Francisco, except we established that's only for uh, <laughs> straight people no, doing drag. The gay men, you know, hold up in their in their small towns like Cabot Cove, you know. Yeah. So if and if last and they have week's ep- caftans. so if last week's episode was all about showing us what life in San Francisco is like, which is surprisingly ungay, uh, then this is showing <laughs> us about LA, and it's an LA that is um, very materialistic and superficial. Uh-huh. People are trading cynical. lovers, cynical, he- rushed, right? So everyone says, "Let's do lunch sometime." And Jessica, God love her, she's always like, "Oh, when exactly?" And it's like, oh, she doesn't understand that that's a thing people say to, like, brush you off, right? Yep. Um, But you have to admire her persistence. God love her. She shows up at a lawyer's office, and he's like, I don't want to talk to you. Why am I? I already made money on this deal. Like, why am I talking to you? So the lawyer is no help to her. So she's like, fine, I'll just go to the movie studio myself to talk to these people about how I don't Uh like what they're doing with my book. And she's, like, trying to argue her way onto the studio lot with no credentials. Yep. Which, like, I've never had credentials at a studio lot, but I know that's not how it works, right? You can't just right. talk your way on to a lot. She's going to. And she, right. And then she's intercepted by um, one of the other cast members, like one of the people involved in the movie. And yes, who's very nice and, and, and vouches for her. So she gets onto the lot and then proceeds to just start talking her way into everything, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, and it, what, what interests me in particular is that the... I, what I think, or what I should say, what what the episode captures so clearly is her sort of frustration at seeing her adaptation, the adaptation of her novel just completely jettison so much of what made the novel popular, yeah. or presumably made it popular. And I mean, mm-hmm. that's something that I think we we can argue about just how accurately Rorishi represents the, the writing and filmmaking industries, but I do think it captures something nicely about how authors feel when they see their work uh, adapted. Especially when it's something that, you know, has no real resemblance to the source material. Like, you know, I'm sure that... Yeah. I mean, it's common that that it happens that things are massively changed when they're adapted from the page to the screen. Sometimes just for practical reasons, right? Like long paragraphs of description don't translate to movies. But um, in this case, it's like the characters have changed gender. They've changed age. It's a very sexually driven story, which Jessica didn't write. Mm-hmm. I mean, it almost has a no bearing. And at one point, the producer even says, I didn't buy it for the story. I bought it because I liked the, the title. title. Mm-hmm. Which is funny because um, titles aren't copyright. So he could have just made a movie with that title. But that's fine. Sure. <laughs> she got the money wanted... out of the deal. So that's fine. Yeah, I guess he was banking on the IP, as they call it now, or the the pre-sold marketability. Yeah, in that people who are fans of Jessica Fletcher's books might see that and then want to go see this movie. But, um, you know, I think that as much as the the legal issue is, like, she has signed away creative control, for better or worse. But I'm guessing that her lawyer – there's – a couple of things that I want to say about this. Like, first, probably somewhere in there, if she really is this big of an author at this point with six bestsellers, there's probably some clause in that agreement about how they need to either take her name off or change the title or 
do some in some way protect her reputation, right? Because if it's mm-hmm. going to say on screen that this was adapted from her novel and it's trash, like that does affect her reputation. So I'm sure there's a clause in the contract about that, right? But at the same time, like you do often lose your ability to control a story and things happen to it. And so you have to decide as an author, do I just cash the check and appreciate that I got some money from this Mm -hmm. and appreciate it as a separate work of art um, or lose sleep over it. But otherwise there's not much else you can do. Right. Right. And what I appreciated it too about it is that two things, one that she has, you know, a business acumen that she understands the contract, like her young lawyer that she calls in is like rambling through the, the party of the first part, blah, blah, blah. But she's just like, give me that. Just I'll let read me read it. it. Then, yeah. But if she's able then, to know, read it and understand it, then why did she sign such a shitty contract in the first place? Well, sure. And I was going to say, and I also um, appreciate that she has, she understands the limits of what she can accomplish just in terms of yeah. um, this. And that, you know. She's the, also very series, gracious. I mean, once she reads yeah. the contract and sees that she has forfeited creative control, she says that she's going to go apologize to the right. producer. And I like that Murder, She Wrote doesn't just use her status as an author as just like a, a, a random plot point. Like, it's often so intrinsic to who she is as a person. Like, I like that it kind of fleshes that out. And it's not just something that's ancillary to who she is, but it's actually a key part of her identity as a character that we mm-hmm. get established with this episode, which I like. I like that, you know, in these episodes, we understand that Jessica is an author, and that there are certain struggles and certain incidents that arise as a result of being a published writer. Yeah, this is the first of many episodes that will grapple with that. I mean, we'll see other adaptations and we'll see uh, people taking her work and spinning it in their own directions and plagiarizing. So uh, these kinds of issues that authors face, um, they're real. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of nice that they're addressing them, even if it's a little bit murky about how savvy she is in this episode. Sure. I mean, well, of course, not to, we don't want to spin our wheels too, on this too much, but she might have signed it when she first published and like her book, it, the contract applied to like the first so many books that she published and she'll have to renegotiate mm-hmm. her contract perhaps at some point. Yeah. And I can guarantee you she won't be making that same mistake of signing over creative <laughs> control. Now she's, you know, she's you akin to like J.K. Rowling. Now you don't have a choice. Now she can my, sit my on My publisher a, is the one who makes screen rights deals. And I can either, I, I, if I don't sign, then I I don't get money. And there's a lot of pressure to sign, right? So like. I mean, she's this, she's the Agatha Christie of the 80s. So who knows? You know, she might have, uh, <laughs> she might have the uh, the clout now to command That's a little bit more control. probably how the show was advertised at some point, don't you think? The Agatha Christie of the 80s? Or something like the Queen of Mystery or something else mm-hmm. that would have clearly banked on the cachet of, uh, of Christie's of Christie. perennial popularity. There's never been a decade where Agatha Christie has not been popular, really. We should talk about the the murder plot. So obviously yes, the producer is the one who gets murdered, another rich white guy who's a tyrant. Yes. <laughs> and a particularly unpleasant person. Like, he's it, even by the standards mm-hmm. of, like, murder she wrote villains, he's just completely, not, I wouldn't say stereotype, but he's definitely not the kind of person that you would want to spend any time with, shall we say. Right. Which is in it, like why this woman, like his, why his young protege loves him is, or I guess she doesn't really is kind of the point, right? It's kind of the point that she doesn't love him. His little, this, yeah. the, and that's also such a Hollywood cliche too, right? The director, well, I guess he's not the director, he's the producer and the, the young starlet that he's going to uh-huh. make into a star and they're yep. having a romantic affair and that's why she's becoming a star, right? That I seems mean, this like ha- a cliche. I mean, and it's impossible to read this episode without shades of Harvey Weinstein, like, in, 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 the, in 2021, which just occurred to me as I was, I was like, oh my God, like, 
it's hard to not read the episode back through that lens, given because you think that about. it's not even that she likes him or loves him. It's that this is a relationship that for her she has to participate in, otherwise her career is doomed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I mean, in that sense, then like, maybe we I, can I, forgive her for her sins, right? I mean, it certainly seems like Jessica is not particular. Like it's, I mean, obviously Jessica doesn't let her get away with it, but it does seem as if like Jessica understands. To some, to, is more sympathetic, perhaps, than she might have otherwise been. Like, it's yeah. one of those moments where Jessica's not entirely unsympathetic to the person who commits the murder. But, you know, we mentioned this in an earlier episode. It seems like there's lots of episodes where women have killed men having something to do with abuse, exploitation, um, even sexual assault or threats of sexual assault. And in those cases, it's like we have identified our murderer uh, and there's a sense that they will be brought to some kind of justice, but maybe not as swift and harsh of justice. And that Jessica, mm-hmm. as you say, Jessica's always a little bit more sympathetic, like, oh, killing is bad, but you kind of had a good reason. Right. This I mean, one, she's not, always... not quite to that extent, but um, right. but yeah, I hadn't thought about the yeah. Weinstein shades and that does actually change things a lot. Uh huh. I mean, like I said, it just occurred to me as I was sitting here. I was like, "Oh my gosh, yes." I mean, because you know, the, uh, the, the as you said, like the, the figure of the the sort of predatory producer taking taking young women under his wing. And I'm putting yeah. this in scare quotes under his wing, and you know, you using their young, new out beauty to both satisfy his lech <laughs> lecherousness, but also advance her career is you know, a tale as old as Hollywood. So, you know, and clearly that's something that this episode is using, and it's rather scathing look at the uh, mendacity and as you said earlier artificiality of Hollywood yeah yeah I what I I think it's interesting how Jessica um, when we're almost near the end it feels like the end so if you don't look at the timestamp of the episode or you don't look at a clock it feels like the end right we've caught a killer everyone's gathered at the beach house we're having this party to celebrate um, and it's it's the it's the fake resolution, right? Because the mm-hmm. whole point of the party was that Jessica wants to trap Cr- Crystal into revealing that um, she's actually the real killer. But I also just <laughs> I found it very interesting that after uh, the producers found Bludgeon to death, so two things are interesting. One that very shortly thereafter, everyone starts accusing Jessica under yeah. the most like flimsiest of accusations, like that she. Well, she said. I'm going to, what I have to do can't be done over the phone. And she said, I'm going to stop him any way I can. I mean, these do sound like threats if you don't know Jessica Fletcher, right? Well, sure. And I mean, and if you're in a TV murder mystery where such relatively anodyne statements can be blown up into something that they're not. Yeah. But it also strikes me what I Did you really just use anodyne in a podcast? Oh. And I think a second ago you said mendacity too. I did say mendacity. I, our listeners will quickly learn that I have the, one of the most pretentious vocabularies, if anybody, that I know. Yeah, so people and tune in for the big vocabulary and then also, like, the weird moments where we talk about, like, like penises and dog. Shoes. Well, do we have any moments like that? We don't, we haven't yet, in we don't have episode? a dog penis or shoe fetishes to, <laughs> we <don't>. so yet. <laughs> but that brings us to um, what I was going to say, that. What I also appreciated was where Jessica's dispatched to tell Crystal that he's dead. And, like, she comes to the, oh, you know, gosh, the beach house. Oh, gosh, so weird. Yeah. It's weird. It's 
No, go ahead and describe it for people who don't remember. So Jessica comes to the beach house and Crystal is quote unquote drunk. She's actually not because as it turns out, like she's diabetic and this whole thing, like she's, she's feigning the drunkenness having just committed the murder. So she's acting as if she's been drinking this whole time. And so Jessica- Give her an alibi, right? Yes. And so Jessica, like, you know, is trying to get her to sober up, throws her, basically throws her into a cold shower and then like, you know, is talking to her. So first of all, it's weird that they would just dispatch this complete stranger to tell a woman that she doesn't know that her lover slash boss slash producer is has been bludgeoned to death with an urn, and then secondly, but it's it, it's weird that she would you know just kind of throw this young woman into <laughs> under a cold yeah. We shower. get this close up of her face as this water is hitting her and she's screaming how cold it is. Which considering which the fact also that she's by not the way drunk. like that does not stop you from being drunk, right? <laughs> You're just but, drunk in cold water. That's what happens. But I also found it oddly touching and as a testament to Did Jessica's you? kind of, oh, you know, her maternal attitude toward people and her innate willingness to sort of take people under her wing when she sees that okay, they're wounded. I like, I love that about her as a character. I mean, that's one of the things that continues to amaze me as I watch the show and rewatch it, you know, and watch it with new eyes, really, is just how likable Jessica is. I know that it's kind of a cliche that people watch TV to meet people that they would like to be friends with. That's true of sitcoms, but it's also true, I think, of Birdie. She wrote, like, Jessica Fletcher feels authentic and real and, like, someone that you would actually want to get to know. And I, you know, I said earlier that I think that's a testament to Angela Lansbury's skill as an actress, but I also just think there's something intrinsic to the character of Jessica that makes both characters in this show, but also us as audiences really enjoy spending time with her. You know, I think I, I don't like her that much in this episode. And I think maybe that's actually why I do like her overall, mm-hmm. um, because there's many episodes that I look back on and I I'll just tell you guys, you know, um, I watched this series growing up, but then I watched it again in college. And after that, it became kind of a. Um, like a guide for me, like if I was in a social situation and I didn't know how to like handle myself, I'd be like, what would Jessica Fletcher do in this moment, right? Because she's always very like, she's always like graceful and gracious, right? And she knows how to just like, you just make small talk and then you reassure people and it's fine, right? And so she's kind of been like a hero for me in that sense. But then rewatching it in my 30s and 40s, there's definitely moments where I don't like her. I think she's too severe or um, I think she's doing something kind of dumb or reckless. And, uh, but maybe overall, but I've never stopped loving her, right? And I think maybe overall, like, that is what makes her so lovable is that she feels real because she feels whole in that way. That she's not Mm -hmm. always perfect. She's not always the hero. She's not always maternal. She's not, neither is she always naive and Mm -hmm. reckless, you know? So that's like that combination that there's. There's some episodes where I love her more than others, or, and I appreciate what she's doing more than others, and that that makes her feel like a real person. Mm-hmm. No, I like that. The same like way that, that I I love you sometimes, and sometimes I I want to kill you. I mean, that is that is the dynamic of our relationship. Like <laughs> it, it has been almost from the very first moment that I made a penis joke when we first met. Can I tell 20... people how we met? We sure can. Do they tune in for that, or do they just want to hear us talk about murder? She. I wrote? mean, well, well, we are since we have pegged ourselves as the Seth and Jessica of this podcast. I think it's both relevant and acceptable. So first of all, we uh, we did our, our first meeting was digital. We met because we were both writing about the Golden Girls. Um, 
for this week-long blog thing about the Golden Girls, and we were commenting on each other's posts. But then because of that, the first time we met face-to-face was at an academic conference, and I had just given my panel, and TJ came up to me to say, like, oh, I'm TJ, you know, from the Golden Girls thing. Um, But a bunch of us were talking, and then TJ said something about sausage, like a really gross innuendo sausage joke, and then looked at us all and said, I mean, we're good enough friends for that, right? Like, I'd literally just met him a minute before, and he was like, we're good enough friends to make that joke, right? And I was like, indeed we are, and we've been best friends ever since. That is correct. So like I said, we are the Seth and Jessica. Um, and we, that, that dynamic emerged very, very quickly. I don't think and Seth is... and Jessica make sausage jokes to each other, though. Not on, not on camera. She doesn't even have Seth at this point. She has Ethan fixing her drain. Well, I know that, but I'm just saying, like, in future, that's... yeah. Their, the nature of their dynamic. And they, yeah. you know, they, they are not afraid to tell each other the truth as they see it. Yeah. But speaking of truth and such, how did you feel about the murder itself? Like, I mean, sort of, sort of like wrap up as we're approaching our end here. Like, how do we feel about the actual murder, its motivation? Like, I felt it felt a little forced, but I found it be- more believable, certainly, than last week's episode. Much more believable than last week's episode. I wasn't actively angry at this episode, um, but... It's, uh, it's uh, again, another episode in which the murder for me feels like incidental to the other things mm-hmm. that are going on that I find much more interesting, like how Jessica's dealing with her book deal or her mm-hmm. movie deal. Um, but it at least feels believable, right? And I do think the, the way that she intervenes in the investigation and the, the false confession, the false arrest, the, that moment that I said earlier where it, almost, it feels like the end of the episode because episodes always end with like some sort of the good people all gathering and like celebrating that they're still here. Right. And justice has been found. I do. I really appreciated that. Mm-hmm. And that, that it was, that it was a fake moment. So right. I think that writing wise, this, this to me was a stronger episode and more interesting, more engaging. Yeah. And I also just, I, I, I liked the idea of like, you know, that part of her motivation is that, you know, she's loved someone else. Like that there's the, the all the sort of movie making stuff that goes into it as, as a, as a devout fan of like, of film and, and movies and such. I, I liked that aspect of it. And then we also, that we get, you know, as I said, alluded to at the beginning, these guest stars that help add the texture that is such a key part of what makes Murder, She Wrote enjoyable. Yeah. So this is still season one. It's kind of crazy how much we've, I know. we've traveled uh, from Maine to California to New York now, just in the space of a couple of episodes. We've already got a movie deal. We've got six bestsellers. Uh, and this one is, it's really kind of cynical and it's not, it's not visually dark. Like it's not like the sort of noir-esque episodes that'll take place in New York later, but it's definitely like kind of emotionally dark. Like Hollywood mm-hmm. is just like kind of a gross place. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of bold of them to do so early in the show before we've really established that Cabot Cove aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is that sense of, um, of, of Hollywood being rather tarnished or rather, um, uh, I wouldn't go so far maybe as to say seedy, but it is kind of like, you know, mm-hmm. that sinister dark. And it, it's not noirish, as you say, in its visual aesthetic, but it's definitely very noirish in its attitude. Like that sense of just yeah. entering this dark. There's no uh, fixing Hollywood, right? Like right. that's definitely the message we're left with. This is always going yeah. to be this like really gross, cynical, corrupt place. And the best you can do is get on a plane and go home. Yep. No, I think that's very correct. And I mean, that's, I think jives with, the general attitude toward Hollywood and kind of like in television world and also in sometimes even in Hollywood world, uh, you know, that 
films about Hollywood tend to portray its darker, more sinister aspects and where people are always kind of like either very superficial and, and very plastic and have only surface, but also where they're willing to cut throats and, you know, betray one another romantically speaking in the pursuit of their own ambition and their own desire. You know, since the the episode the week before was the one that concluded with her niece and now nephew-in-law heading to L.A. to work on TV careers, you kind of wonder what's happened to them. Have they turned yeah, and, into the seedy, corrupt world, too? Right. And what it strikes me is because... And, and, like, the freeze frame at the end is Jessica looking pensive, as I recall. Like, it's, like, it's very different than, say, the ones where she usually ends up smiling or laughing. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the, the freeze frame here is very, very somber compared to its predecessors and its successors in the series. So I find that also to be an interesting coda to the episode as a whole, which is a little more pessimistic than some of the other outings. Now I feel like I need to um, go back and look at the actual freeze frame here and pull it up. We get, I don't know, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's an interesting dynamic at work here that this is a rather, there's a darkness to, some, to Murder, She Wrote sometimes that I think yeah. is what helps to explain its popularity, that it's not just cozy, but there are actually, when you look beyond the surface, you see some of the the darker currents that are under the, that are floating beneath there. That's probably a good place to end um, mm-hmm. for today. And now that we've talked about darkness, um, we'll be back to absolute absurdity in our next episode, It's a Dog's Life. But for now, that's it from Hollywood slash Cabot Cove. I'm Bridget Keys, And I'm TJ West. And thank you for listening. Yep. See you next week. Cabot Cove Gazette's theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nagarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We're Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.